We're going to look at the book of Proverbs this morning. And one perhaps minor reason for doing it is that we rarely look at the book of Proverbs. I thought this is a good opportunity to uh, preach something this week and next week about it. We're going to take the theme of the sovereignty of God, as you can guess from the hymns that we've been singing. Proverbs, if you know the book, is a very practical book. It's about how to live in the various situations of life with wisdom. And Proverbs tells us you can't do that without God being in the big picture because it begins in chapter 1 by saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Therefore, we've got to ask this question. Who is this God whom we are to fear who we are to reverence, which practically means who we are to live before and always to take account of in whatever we do. And one very great aspect of who God is, is his sovereignty, that God has absolute power to rule over all things. So therefore, Proverbs will tell us, we must live our lives in the conscious knowledge that in every situation in which I find myself, God is king, God is sovereign, God is in control. Now then, what are the days in which we're living? Well, I don't have to remind you, do I? Uh, days which could be fearful, days of inflation. Days of increasing godlessness. Days of war and rumours of war. Not to mention whatever your personal situations might be. On Friday, I was talking with a lady, just met her on a bench, <laughs> and she said, I'm glad I'm near the end of my life. She wasn't saying it miserably. I fear for what's coming, so I'm glad I won't be here uh, very long. Well, of course, there's a lady who's not living in the light of God, who is sovereign. We are quite different from that, I trust, aren't we? So, I don't have one particular text. I'm going to look at quite a number of verses in Proverbs. So, as we look at this subject, that God is sovereign, you will, of course, realise that Proverbs is not a theological textbook where it goes through uh, doctrines, but Proverbs deals with concrete situations in which the nation of Israel and individuals would find themselves. So I'm going to pick out five themes about the 
sovereignty of God, five areas where God is sovereign. Now, these are big areas. If God is sovereign in the big things, then you can be quite sure he's sovereign in the little things as well. Now, there's much overlap between these, but they're based on various verses of the scripture. So first of all, God is sovereign over the most powerful of men. And you find that in that well-known verse in Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's not simply the king who's controlled by God, but it's the very centre of his being. It's his heart. It's not just his decisions, his decrees, his laws, but it's the very working of his heart as the source of all that he does. That is like a stream of water. Let's think of irrigation canals. If you've ever seen irrigation, then you'll know that you can control where the water goes. You have the sluice gates and you open them if you want water in a certain field, thinking of rice paddies in particular, and you close it when you don't want more water to come there. It's the will of the farmer who determines where the water goes. And so this verse is saying, it's the will of God that determines the heart of the king. It's in the hand of the Lord. It's the Lord who determines which direction that heart of the king goes. This is the king. This is the most powerful man in the realm. And if it's true of the king, surely it's true of all the subjects of the king. One of the most mighty men who's ever lived was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. But God worked in his heart in the sense he took away his reason for seven times and Nebuchadnezzar ate grass like an ox. Why? Daniel says, to show that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the king. He had to learn, no, God is king and God will do with Nebuchadnezzar what God chooses to do. Think of the people of Israel in exile, in bondage, no hope. What did God do? He raised up Cyrus, the king of the Medes and Persians. Was he a godly man? He certainly was not. But we read in Ezra chapter 1, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to tell the people, go back, build your temple, and here are gifts to help you to build it. 
Now, he didn't do it because he loved the Lord. He no doubt had his own religious and uh, political purposes, but it's the Lord turning his heart as the Lord willed. Think of the, the census in uh, the first century. Why or oh why did Caesar Augustus order a census of people so each person had to go back to his own town so that Joseph had to go to Bethlehem just at the time when Mary was about to give birth. Well, you know why, don't you? Because the Lord had determined, determined it from of old. He turned the heart of Caesar Augustus as he willed. We read earlier in Acts chapter 4 and verse 28, when all the most powerful, the Jews, the Gentiles, the rulers, were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, tell me, what did they accomplish? Well, as they prayed, they did whatever your plan, your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. My friends, God is sovereign, even over the most powerful of men. Never fear the power of men. No matter how great they are, how many they are, the Lord uses them to accomplish his purposes. Then secondly, I say there's a lot of overlap here. God is sovereign over the most invincible armies. And you could look at the same chapter, Proverbs 21 and verse 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Need to understand just a little something about ancient warfare. There was the infantry, the foot soldiers, with their swords and spears. And then there were the horses and the chariots. And in conventional wisdom, if you had horses and chariots aplenty more than your enemy, you were guaranteed victory. Oh, really? That's not taking the Lord into account, is it? The horse is made ready, but victory belongs to the Lord. Pharaoh chased the people when he saw they had gone. You can read it in Acts 14, and it's emphasised with his horses and his chariots. What hope did the people of God have against such a mighty army? There was Sisera in Judges 4, he had 900 chariots of iron, invincible. There were the Philistines in 1 Samuel 13. It's almost hard to believe. They had 30,000 chariots. How can foot soldiers possibly fight against that mighty force? Of course, the danger of God's people was always they would trust in how many 
soldiers, how many horses, how many chariots they would have. As the Psalms say, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, Psalm 20, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And how often superior forces have been overwhelmed by forces that you can't believe uh, could do it. Because there are other factors. God can send rain, can't he? Like he did in Judges 4. And what happens to chariots in the mud? He can send a mist. That's what he did, didn't he, between the army of the Egyptians and the Israelites. God can use surprise as he did in Joshua 11 and so on and so forth. Here's the truth. No matter how invincible the army appears, if God has determined that they will be defeated, defeated they will be because he's sovereign. And then thirdly, God is sovereign over chance. I put that in uh, commas. Chance events. We think they're chance. Of course, they are not because God is sovereign. Uh, chapter 16 and verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is in the Lord. Whatever the lot is, don't worry, it's like a dice. You throw the dice, you have no idea in an ordinary dice what number's going to come up. But this says the decision is from the Lord. Israel used the lot to bring a matter to God for his decision. It acknowledges God is absolutely sovereign. God is in the right, has the right to do whatever he wishes. So the land of Canaan was divided amongst the tribes by lot. You can read in the book of Joshua. Saul was chosen as king by lot. You can read that in 1 Samuel chapter 10. There was in the hand of the priests the Urim and Thummim. We don't really know what they were, except it was a way of God revealing his will. The heathen used the lot. Uh, Haman in the book of Esther, he wanted to know the right time in his God's view when he could go to the king to get all the Jews destroyed. So he cast lots, waited and waited and waited until it was quite clear what God, through the lot, was saying was the propitious time. You know, this is something over which uh, we have no control. But the Lord is in total control. That's why we shouldn't use words like good luck, should we? Because there's no such thing. Even those things which uh, look absolutely pre, uh, not predetermined, they are determined by God. 
And so, my friends, we've got no need to fear earthquakes or viruses or witchcraft. That may not be very relevant to you, but I assure you it's very relevant in so many parts of the world. People really fear uh, the, the power of evil. Whatever methods others use to determine the will of God, we need to have no fear. Because they are powerless against the Lord. And then the fourth area that Proverbs brings to us where God is sovereign, he's sovereign over the best plans of men. And there are a number of verses here. Chapter 16 and verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man. So man plans in his heart. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Verse 9 of the same chapter. The heart of man plans his way. But the Lord establishes his steps. Chapter 19 and verse 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Then chapter 21 and verse 30. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Men can plan, they can plan with the utmost Wisdom as far as they have it. But what actually is said and done is of the Lord, the book of Proverbs says. We have that phrase, man proposes and God disposes. Let me give you some examples then. Pharaoh had the plan. He had the power, didn't he? To destroy all the male children of the Jews by getting the midwives to cast the babies into the river. But it failed. The Pharisees had the plan to destroy Jesus. Do you know what they said? The best time to arrest him and deal with him will be after the feast, Passover. Because then people have left the city, there won't be a riot, we can just get rid of him easily. But that plan failed, didn't it? Why? Jesus had to die during the feast of Passover, didn't he? Because he is the Passover lamb. The Pharisees had their plans, but God's purpose was fulfilled. So you see, unless the plans of men line up with the secret purposes of God, it can't succeed. It may look like it's going to succeed. It may be almost about to succeed, but it will not succeed. Because God is sovereign. As uh, the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 46, Because Isaiah has wonderful prophecies. Can it 
really come to pass? Here it is in verse 10 and 11. I'm God, I declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And then he talks about Cyrus that we mentioned earlier on. Of course, the ultimate failure of the plans of men is found in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here was the devil's great achievement. Jesus is dead. It's all over. God's plan is finished. That is, it's failed. Then Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2.23, you crucified and killed. You thought it was your time of victory, of triumph, but actually all you were doing was fulfilling the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Now the fifth and the last area that Proverbs deals with is by far the most difficult. God is sovereign, not just over men as men, but he's sovereign over wicked men in their wickedness. God doesn't create men with the purpose simply to damn them. But Proverbs 16 and verse 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God has appointed a day of trouble for all the wicked, wherein God will further his purpose to bring glory to his name. Even the wicked will be useful in the purposes of God. They can never defeat God's purpose. They will only fulfill it, extend it. The Babylonians or the Chaldeans, Habakkuk tells us, were the most wicked of people. But God called them, said, come. Come invade my people, the land of Israel. I've got a purpose for you. They didn't know that. You're going to take them into exile. But in exile, there they will be humbled and repent and then be restored. The Babylonians had no thought of doing that. They were just promoting themselves and their empire. In the same way, God said to Pharaoh in Egypt, Pharaoh, I've let you live. I mean, I could snuff you out. I don't have to have ten plagues. The, the first one is enough. I've let you live and have hardened your heart 
to show you my power. This is Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, quoted in Romans 9. In order that my name, my great and glorious name, might be proclaimed. Surely, God is sovereign. If you believe the word of God, whatever questions this raises, you cannot doubt that God is absolutely sovereign. We must add now the second thing. It may be a surprise to you, but man is free. God is sovereign. Man is free. I didn't say free will. I said man is free. Man is not a robot. You know you're not a robot. It's not that we do God's will whether we like it or not because we're forced to do it. As Proverbs was telling us, we are free to plan whatever we want to plan. But whether we can fulfill it is another matter. Whatever wisdom you have, whatever understanding you have, whatever counsel you get from others, you may follow that, you may seek it, but be sure that it's the purpose of the Lord that will be established. So this must be said very clearly. Nowhere does the scripture suggest that anyone does anything under compulsion from God. This is the reason why you're responsible for your actions, for your thoughts. Don't blame God and don't blame your circumstances. And that's why there'll be a judgment according to what you have done. Now, you may say, but I don't understand it. Nor do I. Nor does anybody. How can we possibly understand how God is 100% sovereign and yet we are free. Those two things don't seem to fit together. But what you know from your experience and from the Bible is that you are free. For example, you freely came here this morning. What you're thinking now, whether you're listening to the preaching or thinking about something else, you are free to do that. While that's true, the scripture and our experience tells us that it's the purpose of God that's going to be accomplished. We've got to hold those in tension because God's word teaches both. There's a very interesting sentence that Jesus says at the Last Supper when he's referring to Judas. He says, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. That is, he goes to his crucifixion as it's been determined by God. But, woe to that man, referring to Judas, woe to that man 
by whom he's betrayed. Well, you say, if God's will is being done, why is Judas being judged? Because he's responsible for what he does. He's not being forced. And those two things are their intention. Right in that same sentence that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke. Now then, my, uh, my friends, so what? What does this have to say to us this morning? I've got two things. Many could be said, but first of all, submit, my dear Christian friends, submit to God's providences. You need to lead a life of submission to God who is sovereign. Paul was in prison in Rome. His ministry had been cut short, we read in Philippians chapter 1. Why did God do such a thing? The most useful preacher is shut up in a Roman prison. And he tells the Philippians, this is all for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul says, I see God's hand in this, particularly so that the gospel now comes to Caesar's, the emperor's own household. Well, you have Shimei cursing David as David is forced to leave Jerusalem because of the rebellion of Absalom. One of David's men wants to take off Shimei's head. David says, no, leave him alone. It's what I deserve. It's the Lord who has told him to curse me. Now, I want to bring to you uh, an example from church history. In the life of William Carey, who was one of the first missionaries at the end of the 18th century uh, to India, in 1812, while he was in India, he'd been there for almost 20 years, Carey underwent his greatest trial. He had a print house and it caught on fire and everything in it was destroyed. His office was destroyed. What was in the office? Remember, this is 200 years ago. There were 1,400 reams of paper. All burned. They came from England. Also gone up in smoke were all the uncompleted manuscripts of Bible translation. There was no internet cloud in those days, was there? There was the Canaries New Testament. There were two whole large Old Testament books in Sanskrit. He was a great linguist, by the way. There were many pages of the Bengali dictionary, the Telugu grammar, much of Punjabi grammar, a year's work on the Ramayana, almost all of the dictionary of Sanskrit and its Indian cognates, and the new Tamil and Chinese type faces were reduced to lumps 
of molten metal. Now, that is more than almost anybody can accomplish in a lifetime. He'd done it in less than 20 years. Destroyed by a fire. Imagine then he could write this. This is Carey now speaking. In one night, the labour of years are consumed. I have lately brought some things to the utmost perfection I could and contemplated the mission with perhaps too much self-congratulation. Carey, you've done a lot, you've done very well, it seems, he's saying. The Lord has laid me low that I might look more simply to him. God has a sovereign right, get it? God has a sovereign right to dispose of us as he pleases. We ought to acquiesce, that is agree, in all that God does with us and to us. Now those latter words he preached the Sunday after the fire from Psalm 46 verse 10. He had two headings in that sermon. One, God's right or authority to dispose of us as he pleases. After all, he's sovereign, isn't he? And we rejoice that he's king. Number two, man's duty to acquiesce, to humbly submit to his will. Here, my friends, I say to you, here is biblical Christianity. And he used the word, here is true Calvinism. As that's based upon the Bible. The will of God, however distasteful it might be, is to be accepted with the conviction that God does all things well. And the second point of application then is to exhort you, to encourage you to persevere in the faith. It's very practical, isn't it? If you know that nothing and no one can defeat the one you follow, then keep following him. Don't listen to those who are exalting the devil as if somehow there's a contest between the devil and God as equals. There's nothing that's able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is working all things for good and nothing is going to frustrate God's purpose. Imagine you were an Israelite in the days of Pharaoh and you only see Pharaoh becoming more and more repressive and dictatorial. Okay, you lazy Israelites, you want to go? Obviously, you've got time on your hands. You're going to have to look for the straw now to make the bricks. Oh, their burdens became heavier and heavier. Just imagine you were there and you were saying, what hope is there? Pharaoh has all power. Well, you know what happened. 
What if you were an Israelite and you heard that the mighty Babylonian army was coming and you knew what they did? What a temptation, wouldn't it, to give up, to be in despair. You know, I'm bringing those examples because maybe that's the attitude some of us have because of what's going on around us. Yet both those situations turned out for blessing, didn't they? (laughs) The first one turned out that the people uh, left uh, Egyptian bondage and went on their journey to Canaan. And the second one, yes, it was tough going to exile, but it was all for uh, their uh, repentance, their restoration, and for the coming of the Messiah eventually. I pose a question. I don't know, do you look with some fear at the political situation in this country? At least the temptation must be there. On the world scene, with the potential for who knows what? What if God is exalting wicked leaders today in order to hasten the end? It's only a question I'm asking. We don't know exactly what God's immediate purposes are, do we? But we know they're for good for his people. We know they're in line with his eternal purposes of glory. Do you remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Oh, they've given up, haven't they? This one we put all our hope in. He's dead. It's finished. It's all over. We're going home. Yet that very one was talking to them as they journeyed home. It looked like Jesus was defeated in death, but no, no, no. That defeat was actually God's great victory. I trust that encourages you, and I speak to some of you. You can't really say that you have humbled yourself before God as your king. You've got murmurings in you, you've got gripes, you're bitter the way you've been treated, how your life has turned out may be. And you refuse to bow the knee. I simply want to tell you from what we've looked at this morning, please don't rebel against God. Listen to the words of Psalm 2 when it says, why do the nations, you're not a nation, you're just one person, but why would the nations rage and be against the Lord and his anointed? What's God's response to them? It says, he who sits in the heavens is king. He laughs. He has them in derision. Who are you, my friend, to say no to God who is sovereign? And this God to whom you continue to say no, he's not some 
mean, powerful, uh, greedy God like so many powerful rulers in this world. This God is also the Saviour. Why wouldn't you bow the knee before him? He's not only got all power, he's shown that power in sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to save you, to make you new, to keep you, to make you like himself, to bring you to glory. That's what he's done in his sovereignty, and yet you say no? then you are doubly foolish, aren't you? Number one, because you're rebelling against one against whom you can't succeed. It's impossible to succeed, because he's God. But you're rebelling against one who has shown love to sinners like yourself, who, as the Bible pictures, holds out his hands to you and says, come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yes, take my yoke, take my rule upon you, but I am meek and lowly in heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. Or bow the knee to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ, and know the joy of having him as your king, of serving him as your king, and knowing that he does do all things well. Let's pray together. Please, Lord, we pray, in your powerful grace, please work among us. Help us as your people to submit to you humbly, joyfully. Help those who are still in rebellion, O Lord, to come in repentance, to confess that rebellion and to hand over their weapons of rebellion and to put their trust in the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.